Sri Verna McGee talks about the Bible bus that he drives through the Bible in his radio ministry and the stops that he has along the way. Today we're coming in our little Bible bus to the end of the book of Romans. Romans has been a remarkable discourse on how to be right with God. We have learned that mankind is sinful and is under the wrath, the righteous wrath of God. Whether Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God in his marvelous grace has provided for man to be redeemed from his sin through the offering up of Jesus Christ as our sin offering. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He paid the full price for our sins once and for all at the cross. When he died, he said, it is finished. That drew the line. That summed it up. The total price was paid at that point for our sins. We can do nothing more to add to that. He doesn't need to die again and again. He died once and that for all. And now those of us who by faith receive him and trust him, the living Savior who rose from the dead, we are redeemed from sin and made right with God. God declares us to be righteous in his sight. And that is really the theme of the whole book, the theme of justification by faith. That gift of righteousness which God gives to the one who repents of his sin and trusts Jesus Christ is then able to be expressed in the life even though sin is still within the Christian we have died to sin and are alive to God so that that righteousness that God has put within us can be expressed in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the precious enabler who abides within so that we might be enabled to live pleasing to God. And we have learned that this righteousness as it is lived through us then is to impact all of the relationships that we have. But this book was not written to be a systematic theology text, though it is that. It is a systematic laying out of the doctrine of salvation. But it was not written primarily to be that. Rather, it is a letter. Paul did not sit down to write a theology text. He sat down to write an epistle to a church where he had not yet been. And as this letter concludes, as do many letters, it concludes with various and perhaps even disjointed thoughts. These are some things he wants to get in as he brings this letter to those beloved saints to its close. Now he begins, as we're going to read it in our text in verse 17, by saying, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord 
Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. The last words of the Apostle to the Roman Church in this letter involve three themes. There is a word of admonition, verses 17 through 20, a word of salutation, verses 21 through 24, and finally a word of benediction, verses 25 through 27. Let's look at these themes this morning and then draw some application to our lives. The first word as he closes is a word of admonition. The apostle says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. They were facing a danger in Rome, as all churches face. It was the danger of threat to the church's fellowship by those making division. The word literally means those who cause you to stand apart from one another. Those who cause you to stand in such a way that you're not close anymore. Those who create division or dissension among you. And those who also cause or make hindrances. This word hindrances is the same one that we saw in chapter 14, verse 13. They're translated stumbling block. And it refers to enticements or snares. In other words, the apostle is warning about some people who apparently were even involved to some degree within their church who would cause them to stand apart from one another and to be ensnared into teaching that was contrary to that which they had heard and learned. Contrary to the revealed truth of God. That is the danger. And it's always a danger. It is always a danger with God's people. Because you see, in the professing church, in the local church, Satan, too, is scattering his seeds with God's. 
And along with the wheat, right now in this age, is growing the tares. And sometimes they're very difficult to tell apart. The only way to tell a wheat plant and a tear apart is to wait until there is fruit. And then it's easy to see which is genuine and which is not. Now the Apostle is saying to us here that there were some, and I would not necessarily say they were totally unbelievers, but they were certainly those who were wrong in their doctrines and who were slaves to their own appetites. There were some among them who were characterized that way. And he says, watch out for them. He says that we have a duty. Keep your eye on them. Don't ignore them. Don't pretend they're not there. Don't pull the rug over a situation and say, well, it'll go away if we just don't worry about it. Because that doesn't happen. The Apostle says, when you see the fruit in a person's life, and that fruit is dissension or division, and it is a hindrance to the growth of other people, keep your eye on that person. Don't lose sight of him. Don't be unsuspecting. The idea is be suspicious. Be suspicious. And he says, secondly, turn away from him. Shun him. Avoid him. Now, in the day in which we live, there's a big word that people like to use in cases like this. It's the word dialogue. If we find people that don't agree with us, well, let's get, law, get it together and, and dialogue. And the danger so often with that, uh, with that is that people dialogue apart from the word of God. They lay the Bible aside and they say, well, let's just get together and talk and see where we can agree. And they forget about the Word of God. There's not a problem dialoguing if the Word of God is the foundation, the basis of it. He does not tell us here to dialogue with these people. He says, rather, that we are to shun them, turn away from them, avoid them. Don't spend time with them. Generally, he says that our responsibility regarding them in verse 18 is that uh, we, or rather verse 19, is that we are to be wise in what is good and innocent toward what is evil. Have you heard, ever heard somebody say, well, I want to go down there and hear what they say so that I'll be informed. Or I want to go over there and, and see what's happening in that place so that I'll know firsthand what it's all about. Well, that may be wise in some instances, but I would draw to your attention what it says in this verse, verse 19. He says, if you're going to be informed, if you're going to be wise, then be informed and wise about the right, about the good. But he says, stay simple. Stay uninvolved with. Be innocent regarding that which is evil. You don't need to be informed about that. You see, that's part of the lie that, that Satan sold Eve. She knew that it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he sort of insinuated to her, well, how are you going to know what evil is if you don't eat of this? You see, she should have known what evil was simply by what God said, not by personal experience. 
You and I need to be wise toward what is good, but we need to remain innocent toward what is evil. Now he tells us that these people that he's talking about are slaves not of Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites, their own desires. The thought is that they have a hidden agenda. They don't talk about it openly. But they have some goals that are under the table, so to speak. And that's really what they're working for. Their own desires, their own appetites. Not those desires and goals that would be Jesus Christ's. And he says in order to attain these, they use smooth and flattering speech. In other words, their speech is uh, plausible. It sounds good on the surface. It is uh, perhaps insinuating speech. They may employ a false kind of flattery to get on your good side. But behind all of that talk is their appetite, what they really want from you. And he says, don't be unsuspecting toward people like this. When I read those verses, I think, frankly, of some of the preachers that I see on television are very smooth, and their speech sounds so good as you listen to it, but somehow there's something there that just does not quite ring true. And not infrequently, after a while, there are reports that begin to get out of some things going on under the surface that they really don't want you to know about. They would just prefer you listen to them. And so often their teaching causes division and dissension among God's people. It's that which ensnares people from a genuine walk with God and gets them chasing rabbits in some direction so they don't make any more progress in their spiritual life. It's that which plays upon the unsuspecting. And he says that we are to keep our eyes on people like that. We're to have nothing to do with them. We're to turn from them and be wise toward what is good and innocent toward what is evil. Now he tells us that ultimately the victory of God is going to be ours. He says the God of peace is going to soon crush Satan under your feet. Even though there are people like this around seeking to hinder the work of God and seeking to divide the work of God, he says ultimately Satan is going to be defeated in these kinds of attempts. Notice he calls God the God of peace. God has called us, folks, to peace. And when there is a teaching or a personality that begins to disrupt and to create a lack of peace and confusion, that is not of God. God is the God of peace, and it is the God of peace who is someday going to crush Satan. It seems like a rather violent thing for the God of peace to do, doesn't it? The language there is graphic. It's analogous to what is said in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of Eve, but the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, talking about Jesus Christ, of course. 
And here is but another word about the same thing, that there is a day coming when Satan and all of his attempts to hinder the work of God and God's people is going to be crushed. And I'm encouraged by the fact it says soon. Now we might say not soon enough, but uh, God nonetheless assures us that it will be soon. We get very impatient, don't we? We need to learn to be patient, to wait on God's timetable. The God of peace will give you his victory. He will execute judgment upon Satan and you will experience that peace, that victory. But what do we do in the meantime? Because we're in the midst of a battle. And there are people who seek to hinder God's work as he describes here. What are we to do waiting for that victory to come? Well, he tells us we have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with us. Right now we have the promise of his grace to strengthen us, to enable us, to enlighten us, and to keep us. We have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we could not ask for more than that. For in his grace is all that we need, not only for eternity to come, folks, but for this life right here now. And so there is this word of admonition. Watch out for these people that he describes. Keep your eye on them. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't send them money. Don't fellowship with them. Shun them. Be wise toward what is good and ignorant, innocent, simple regarding what is evil. God is going to give you the victory someday, though you're in the battle now, but in the battle even now, you have the grace of God to keep you. That's his admonition to the Romans, and that's his admonition to you and me today. Now, we have a section with some salutations, some greetings. Already we have had greetings from the apostle to certain people. We studied those last week. But here we have greetings from some of those who were part of Paul's team. In verse 21, we have greetings from a co-worker and several kinsmen. The co-worker is Timothy, and Timothy is no stranger. He was half Gentile, half Jew, from the city of Lystra, a young man that Paul had led to faith in Jesus Christ, a man who was close to Paul, and a man that perhaps has, is most frequently mentioned of all of Paul's companions. Timothy was with Paul there in Corinth as this letter was written. He calls him my fellow worker, and what a, what a badge of honor that must have been for Timothy. A fellow worker of the Apostle Paul, he sends his greetings. But along with this co-worker, there are several kinsmen. Jason is mentioned. <clears throat> this is perhaps the same as the one mentioned in Acts chapter 17, a man who lived in Thessalonica. We don't really know much about him other than those these two possible references. And then Sosipater, perhaps, is the same as the one mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. He was a man of character and a man that the apostle took with him, an appointee of the churches, to take that offering back to the Jerusalem church. And then he mentions Lucius. I skipped over him, didn't I? This is possibly Luke, the beloved physician, who wrote the book of Acts, as well as the gospel that bears his name. 
There are others who say perhaps it is Lucius of Cyrene. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, one of the leaders uh, of the church, the early church. We don't really know. But the thing that the apostle says about them is that they are his kinsmen. And last week we suggested to you that the most likely meaning of that is that they were of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only Jews, but of the same tribe as the Apostle Paul. In verse 22, we have a greeting from a scribe, Tertius. You see, the Apostle Paul did not personally pen all of his epistles. He dictated those epistles. And in this case, we have the name of his secretary, his amanuensis, his scribe. And this man's name was Tertius. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. And so at this point, he takes the pen in hand and writes a personal word from himself. As I think of this man, Tertius, I try to imagine the privilege that was his. Have you ever thought about this? He was part of the miracle of inspiration. For what we say about inspiration is that it's the superintending of God, the Holy Spirit, so that the writers of the books of the Bible wrote inerrantly the very words as well as the thoughts of God. That means in the case of a man like Tertius, the Holy Spirit generated the words within the mind of Paul, and he spoke them, But then the Holy Spirit put his hand over Tertius' hand so that as he wrote, he wrote inerrantly what Paul was dictating. And so Tertius was one of those key men used of God the Holy Spirit in bringing this precious book to you and me today. Then there is a greeting in verse 23 from Paul's host, a man named Gaius a man that Paul apparently had baptized himself, if he's the same one as mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.14, and there's every reason to believe that. He may be the same as the man Titus Justus in Acts 18, verse 7. This would simply be another of his names, Gaius. His home was not only a home for Paul, but it was the home of that church, apparently, because it says here that he is host to me and to the whole church. That would suggest to us that Gaius must have been a man of some means. He apparently had a home that was big enough to take care of a a fairly good-sized crowd for that day. He was a host to the church and apparently cared for other needs as well as those needs arose. So we see in this man, Gaius, a commendable spirit of hospitality. A man who was willing to use his home for the Lord. Are you? Could you be commended, as was the uh, man before us, as a man who hosts other believers? You know, occasionally we have a music group come through, or we have a missions conference, or there's some other activity that we are sponsoring, and we have a need for homes to be opened up. And I appreciate those who are willing to use their homes as centers of hospitality for the Lord. It's the right thing to do. I realize occasionally that there are reasons that 
Some of us cannot do that. And yet, if we can, we should open our homes to other believers when there is an occasion for that. Whether it's a drop-in for our small church or the youth group needs to find a place to settle for a night. Uh, invite them to come in. They pay for all damages. Uh, I can assure you of that. Invite them to come in and share your home. I think it's significant that the Holy Spirit includes this in the book. Here's a man who was a generous man, and that ought to, to really characterize all of us, shouldn't it, with our homes. And then he, he says in verse 23, the last part of the verse, that there's greetings from another man. His name is Erastus. Erastus is called here, at least in my translation, the city treasurer. This is a word that could refer to that, but probably refers in a more general sense to the city manager of Corinth. And so here's a politician who is a Christian. The two thoughts are not necessarily uh, opposites. There are some Christian politicians, and Erastus was apparently a man of that character. In fact, the archaeologists have uncovered a pavement in Corinth that has his name inscribed on it. And it says on there, Erastus, commissioner for public works, laid this pavement at his own expense. Now that's not a bad idea. I wonder if we could convince the city council of doing things like that. Apparently, because the title in that inscription is different than the one in the Bible, Erastus at one time was the commissioner for public works, but then arose in the ranks to become the city manager of Corinth. And he is mentioned here and sends his greetings, along with a man whose name is Quartus. Now in the Latin that means fourth, and there are some who suggest that he may be a brother to Tertius, which means third. And so you've got the third in the family and the fourth in the family. Who knows? That's the only thing I can say about the name Quartus. There is no other mention of him in the Bible or even in secular history. What does all of this tell us about Paul? I think something significant. What this tells me is that Paul was a team man. He was a man who surrounded himself with a team of people so that as he traveled doing the work of God, there were others who assisted him in that work, who were associated with him. You know something? I believe that all of us need to be team people. I don't believe that God has created very many Christians to be isolated all by themselves out there. Now I realize that there are some missionaries, for example, who must be gifted to do that, and they go out into isolated areas of the jungle or the desert, and they spend months or sometimes even years nearly by themselves and only with the people that they are trying to reach for Christ. I think, though, that the rule is, that's the exception, the rule is that we need to be team people. Are you part of a team? Are you part of a, a growth group, for example? Two or three or maybe ten people who meet together 
Are you associated with a small group on a more intimate level? People tell us that we can only know a certain number of, of others. I have heard that it's only possible for any of us to know to a decent degree a hundred people. Now some may know more than that and others fewer. But my point is that we can't know everybody in this church and you can't even know everybody in your small church. We need to be a part of a, a smaller group. Now it may be that you find your team, your group identity at, at your school. There's nothing wrong with that as long as that group is not hindering you in your spiritual walk. It, and the same would be true at your office. It may be that it's there that you find your, your intimate identity with a small group. But I believe that God has built that into all of us with just a few exceptions. Now my challenge to you is this. If you are a part of a group out there in your office or at your school or somewhere else, if you're part of a group that is not building you and helping you spiritually, then you need to find another group where you can get that sort of help. I would not necessarily say lay aside your others. You may be able to reach them for Christ. But then on the other hand, you may need to separate from them if they are dragging you down spiritually. My point is that we need to find a group somewhere, an intimate association with a few individuals where we can be helped along spiritually. We need that. God hasn't created you and your wives to sit there retired in your apartment by yourself all week to watch television and to be sort of isolated by yourselves. God wants you to be a part of a group. Career young person, God wants you to be a part of a group. It may not be so difficult for you. You're a little more free for that kind of thing. You know who it's really tough on? I think it's tough for mothers with small children to find that kind of identity. With one or two or five other mothers, perhaps, so that they can talk on an adult level. I got a real charge out of my wife yesterday. She often gives me charges. And uh, she told me that uh, a fella had called her from a church in California. I'd called out there <clears throat> to get some information, and he had called back uh, with that information for me. And she said, Do you know he talked to me? And he gave me that information for you. He talked to me like an adult. <laughs> he did, huh? And you know, I was reminded again that a mother who is with small children all day long enjoys conversation beyond goo-goo and da-da and <laughs> stop it. <laughs> Go to your room. And those kinds of things, you know. But it, it's really tough. I think it's really tough 
for mothers with small children to find that. But we all need it. Now, I don't know where you're going to find yours, but find it. Find it somewhere. So I don't know where to start. Well, pray. Ask God to show you where to start, to find that group identity, that team, that team of people who will support you and be with you and help you. Let's move ahead to verses 27 through 20, 25 through 27. The benediction. No, we're not quite done yet, but Paul is, just about. His benediction is a dedication of the book. He dedicates it to God. He says to him. And in verse 27, he picks up on his thought again, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. That is the dedication for the book. In the dedication, he gives praise and glory eternally to God for two things. First, for his work, and secondly, for his word. Now, what is the work of God for which he gives glory to God? It is that work of establishing his people. Now, to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, That word establish is an important word. It means to fix. It means to set, S-E-T. It means to make stable. It comes from a root word which meant a prop. Back behind these curtains are some props for a play that's going to be presented here in a few weeks. And uh, those props are supported. They're, They're sets, we call them. Now what this word is telling us is that that God props us. He sets us. He establishes us. He holds us up. You and I are not left to hang on by our fingernails to the Christian life. But it is the work of God to establish us who belong to him. I like that. Back in the book of Exodus, there is a story about Moses. The people of Israel, you'll recall, are down there in the valley, and they're going through a war. Moses is up on the mountaintop with Aaron and Hur, and he has the rod of God in his hand, and as he lifts that rod of God, a symbol of intercession before Jehovah, the people of Israel are winning the battle, and as he lowers it, because he's tired, they're driven back. And so what he needs is somebody to steady his hands and to hold up his hands so that that rod can stay there. And so Aaron and her take a hand, and they hold up the rod of God along with Moses. And the people of God won the victory. Now in the Greek translation of that Old Testament passage, it's called the Septuagint, This word establish is used when it says they held up the hands of Moses. Dear folks, you and I have one who holds us up. It's God. It's God. It is he who is committed to establish you. To make you stable. You say, but I feel like water at 211 degrees. Don't we all at times? But let me tell you, God is even working in that situation ultimately to only strengthen you more. God's work is to establish you, and Paul praises God for that. And by the way, in 2 Peter 1.12, he 
He tells us that the means of God doing that is the word. You and I are not established just by God zapping us with little things from heaven every now and then. You and I are established as we spend time in the word of God. God uses it to establish us, to set us. That's his means. But then he praises God for his word, the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ. And he says three things about this word of the gospel. He says it has been kept secret. It's now manifested and has been made known. When he says that it has been kept secret but now is manifested, he's really defining that word mystery that you see in verse 25. For the mystery refers to that which has before been in silence. Nothing has been said about it, but now it has been told. That's a mystery in the Bible sense. Now what is the mystery? Well, the mystery really is the church of Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, there wasn't a word about the church. Not a word. It was in silence. Now, we can go back into the Old Testament with our New Testament flashlight, and we can see prophecies and hints about the church, but if we didn't have that flashlight, we'd still be in the dark about it, because it was a mystery. And it was not revealed until the New Testament time through the Apostle Paul. He is the apostle of this message of the church. He is the man that God used to declare it so that we understand it. And the real heart of it is, as we have already studied in Romans, that no longer does God favor the Jew, but God looks at Jew and Gentile alike, and both may come directly to him and be united in Jesus Christ without any more distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's what has been made known. Listen, listen to me. That has been the purpose of God from long ages past. You know what that refers to? That refers to way back yonder, before time even began. Before there was a calculation of years and months and so on, way back then, God's purpose was to redeem mankind and unite mankind to himself. And the church was the heart of that. Do you realize that today, if you're a Christian, you have entered into a relationship with God that God planned before he ever said, let there be light. And that God had you in view to be a part of that? That's an amazing thing. The purpose, the focus of all of history is that of which you are a member and a part. The church of Jesus Christ. And someday when we get beyond time and we look back, I don't know how God's going to do it, but I think somehow he will. Maybe it's going to be on a video cassette or maybe there's going to be a I don't know what. 
But we're going to look back on time when we get in eternity. And you know what we're going to see? We're going to see highlights and things happen here and there, but the thing that's going to tie it all together is God's redemption through Jesus Christ and his bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one body in Christ. And we're going to marvel again that we were and are a part of all of that. And God says this thing has been made known to all the nations. Somebody said the book of Romans is a missionary manifesto. Because this good news of redemption in Jesus Christ and God's purpose for the ages is not something for just the white race or just for those who speak the English language or for those who are in the Western culture, but this is a message for the world. And that's why we invest thousands of dollars every year and hours of praying time into missions. Because it is God's purpose that this message be made known to all the nations to bring them to the obedience of faith. Men are called the sons of disobedience in the Bible. We are the children of disobedience, it said, because we're sinners. But God intends for us to be brought to obedience. And where do we start? We start by obeying the command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For not to believe on him with all of your heart is to disobey God and to go to hell forever. The obedience of faith begins by obeying the gospel to believe on Christ. And then that obedience begins to express itself in our lifestyle. So we begin to obey God instead of disobey God. Do you see that the reason that God saved you, my friend, is that he might bring you into obedience to himself? He wants you to live an obedient life. Are you doing that, Christian? Are you doing that? Or is there an area of gross disobedience in your life? If that's the case, will you today repent of that? Come back to your father and say, Father, I want to be obedient. Forgive me and give me grace in this area that I may be obedient to you. He has called us to the obedience of faith, this only wise God, and to him be the glory forever. He deserves glory from your life and mine. If you are saved, and I hope you are, you can summarize your purpose for living in that one phrase, the glory of God. And I hope that our lifestyle today and our words and our thoughts is consistent with what glorifies God. If it's not, let's deal with it and stop playing around with sin. And let's get to the place of obeying and trusting and bringing glory to God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these closing, perhaps even disjointed words of the Apostle. They stimulate me, and I trust all of us as we look at them. And Father, there are some applications in the admonition, 
and the salutation and, and this benediction for each of us, I pray that our lives will be in conformity to your will. Lord, it's so easy for us to go on day after day and to fantasize and to think that everything is all right without taking a close look. Forgive us for that insensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray especially for that one who may be here today without Jesus Christ, who's never obeyed and believed on him, that one today would obey and trust Jesus Christ under the saving of his soul. And I pray this for Jesus' sake as well as his, and in Jesus' name, amen.